can open with me in the scriptures to the book of Haggai, chapter 1. Haggai, chapter 1. If you're wondering where Haggai is, you can open to the first page of the New Testament in Matthew, and then go back three books through Malachi, Zephaniah, and then you'll find Haggai. We'll read the first chapter of Haggai and into chapter 2, verse 9. As you'll see as we read through this chapter and into the next, Haggai is a prophet sent to Israel to encourage them, to command them to resume construction of the temple in Jerusalem. Haggai verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, And on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now, take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. 
Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The past couple of weeks, if you have been here with us, you will remember that we've considered a couple different components of Christian discipleship, what it looks like to live as a follower of Christ, certain things that should be present in each of our lives. Two weeks ago, we considered that following Jesus, first of all, looks like resting in Jesus from Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Last week, we looked at the Christian life as a life of zeal for Jesus. We live zealous lives for Christ. It's one of the things that marks a disciple of Jesus. This morning, we are going to consider courage through Jesus. Courage through Jesus. Courage has to do with a person's determination to face a task even when it seems difficult. So basically, courage is looking at something and realizing that it's, it's frightening, it is scary, it is overwhelming, it is something that will take a great deal of effort to overcome, and yet courage still tackles it out of determination and does what needs to be done despite the obstacles. The opposite of courage, of course, is discouragement, to be discouraged, to lack that Willingness to do what needs to be done because we're overwhelmed by discouragement. We lose heart. We faint. It's giving into fear. It's giving into disappointment. It is losing the determination and willingness to endure. That's the opposite of courage. Life in this world is a, wor- is, is, is a life that stands in opposition to courage. Where life in this world is a discouraging life. In a lot of ways, we live in a discouraging world. I doubt that I need to remind any of you of that reality this morning. We live in a world that is full of various disappointments, things that remind us that this is a hard place to be, where there are things like depression that weigh on the mind day after day after day where our bodies grow weak and tired because of the daily responsibilities that are on us and whatever our calling is. There are things like sickness. There are things like being betrayed by friends and loved ones. There's the abandonment of a spouse or a sibling or someone else close to us who forsakes us. There's abuse. There's physical pain. There's loss, the loss of loved ones. There is sin, there is failure, there is guilt, there is shame. We live in a world that is full of all sorts of reasons to grow discouraged, a world that is opposed to courage. 
And each of those presents us with the temptation to ask the question, why should I even try anymore? What's the point? What's the point of of going on, of pressing on, if it just seems like life is one disappointment after another? We're faced with that question. Perhaps you've asked that question even this week. Perhaps you've asked that question even this morning. What's the point? Why keep trying? Why keep pressing on? In those moments, where does courage come from? Where do we find strength to press on in the moments that we're asking, why does it even matter anymore? Where does the hope come from? Well, this morning, we are considering a passage that helps us to answer that question from the book of Haggai. Haggai was sent to prophesy, first of all, to a disobedient people, and then secondly, in his second message to them, the one we're considering today, to a discouraged people. Haggai was sent to prophesy to a discouraged people, a people that were losing heart in the work, in the task that God had given them to do, specifically the building of the temple. And Haggai's basic message, the message God sent through Haggai to the Israelites who were discouraged and were losing heart, is simply take courage and work. That's the summary of Haggai's message to the Israelites, and that's the summary of God's message to us this morning. Take courage and work. So let's consider where that charge comes from. What's, what's going on in the book of Haggai that would first of all have the Israelites discouraged and then would secondly lead God to give them the charge, take courage and work. Well, as I mentioned, this is the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. So in 580 BC, Jerusalem was sacked. The, the temple was laid in ruins. It was destroyed completely by the Babylonians. In 536 B.C., some Israelites were able to return to Jerusalem and start construction on the temple. That's what we read about in the book of Ezra. But they didn't make it very far. They laid the foundation, but then they faced opposition. And so for 16 years, the temple laid unfinished and abandoned in Jerusalem. The foundation had been laid, but no further work was done. And then we read in the first chapter of Haggai, that the Israelites weren't really all that concerned about the temple being unfinished. They were pretty comfortable in their nice houses with paneled walls, living luxurious lives in Jerusalem. And so God comes through Haggai in chapter 1, and he says, Get to work. Build my house. You're living in your nice homes. My temple is forsaken. Why are you spending all of your efforts and energy on your comforts when the dwelling place of the Most High, the Lord of hosts, is, is, is in ruins? And so the people respond, surprisingly, they respond obediently. This is one of the rare instances where we see quick uh, repentance and obedience on the part of God's people when they're admonished. They respond, they, they obey, God stirs their hearts, and they start building. But they only get about three and a half weeks in, and it seems like discouragement is setting in for them. They, they, they realize that the finished product of what they're building is, is hardly even going to be worth the effort. Because they're looking at what they're building, and, and some of the people who are present remembered what the temple used to look like. Solomon's temple, the great temple, the glorious temple. And then they're looking at this temple, the one they're building. Do you remember in the book of Ezra, when they start to lay the foundation, some people were rejoicing because rejoicing they were happy. There's a temple. 
But what were other people doing? The, the older people who were there, who remembered the old days, who remembered the first temple, they were weeping because they knew this is nothing like the glory of Solomon. And as we come to Haggai, and as they start to build the temple, they get three and a half weeks in, and it seems they're starting to realize the same thing. This is pretty lame. This, this, is, this, is, not, this is not Solomon's glory. In fact, even God acknowledges that. He says in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, Haggai chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Speak now, he's speaking to Haggai, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who's left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Referring to Solomon's temple. How do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? I mean, God is basically saying, I see, I see what you guys are seeing. Isn't this thing lame? I mean, this is, this is pretty pathetic. It seems like nothing compared to Solomon's temple, doesn't it? It's interesting. God doesn't come along and say, it's okay. It's not so bad. It's really not that bad, guys. It's a temple. At least I'm going to dwell there. No, he, he, he looks at it from their perspective and he says, yeah, it's like nothing. It's pretty bad. Some of us have had these wonderful ideas with regard to a DIY project in our homes, often stimulated because our wives, I mean we, have seen on Pinterest these, these wonderful examples of what a room in our house could look like. And, and, and so we set off on this ambitious attempt to build what we see. And, and we start working, we start putting things together the best we can, and it doesn't take long to realize our DIY limitations. And we start to realize what I am building here and what I see there, they don't look the same. There, there's a discrepancy between the pictures on Pinterest and the reality of what is being built in my home right now. And when that happens, and we're right in the middle of a project, we've ripped things out, we've started to put things together, we're looking at it and realizing I don't have the resources and I certainly don't have the skill to make this thing look like that, just a little ways into the project, it's easy to lose heart and think, well, why even keep doing this? It looked better before I started. <laughs> that must have been something of what the Israelites were feeling. They were looking at this massive task in front of them to build a temple. And yet they knew no matter how hard they try, no matter how much effort they put into it, they lacked the resources and the craftsmanship to do what they wanted to do. They could never build the temple the way they wanted to build it. it. It lacked its former glory. It was like nothing in comparison to what it once was. And so God meets them in the middle of that discouragement, in the midst of that discouragement, and he encourages them. He tells them to take courage and to keep building, to not lose heart. And he does that in two ways. First of all, he does it through the assurance of his presence. So we read in verse 4, but now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. 
In other words, God's telling them, don't be paralyzed by what you see. Don't don't be paralyzed by what's right in front of you right now, by your discouragement and disappointment at what you're able to see and envision for the future. Don't be paralyzed by that, but take courage and keep working. Keep doing what you're told. Be faithful in the task. And the reason that the Israelites should do that, the Lord says, is because I'm with you. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord who governs creation, who rules all things. I, Israel, I'm in your midst. The picture here is sort of like a a small child who's about to take on some great task. Some great task like going to the dentist for the first time. Or, Or some great task like finally taking off the training wheels and sitting on a bike and getting ready to take off on a very scary endeavor. And it's like a father or a mother coming behind that child, putting his or her hand on, on the child's shoulder and saying, don't worry, I'm with you. I'm with you. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. As Israel looks at this task and thinks, there's no way. There is no way we can do anything with this. God comes along and it's as if he puts his hand on their shoulder and he says, Israel, I'm with you. Take courage and work. And he says that he is with them according to his promise. In verse 5, as for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, he says. When God rescued his people out of Egypt, one of the central promises that he made to them was that he would be with them. We read in Exodus 29, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. He says, I brought them out of Egypt that I might dwell among them. In other words, he's saying, the reason I brought them out of Egypt, this is the purpose for which I brought them out of Egypt. This was the goal, in order that I might dwell among them. I redeemed them so that I would live with them, he's saying. And now in Haggai, he's saying, I've kept that promise, Israel. I've not forsaken you. I am still the God, the Lord of hosts, who lives in your midst. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. What's so significant about the Lord being in the midst of his people? If you're an Israelite in this situation and setting off on this building project and you're discouraged, why would it bring you comfort to know that the Lord of hosts is in your midst? A better question, with whatever it is that's discouraging you this morning, with whatever task, responsibility, or trial that feels overwhelming to you this morning, why is it an encouragement to you to know that the Lord of hosts is with you? Because it assures the Israelites and it assures us that building is not up to us. That putting this temple together, constructing it, and making it into what it should be does not depend on their ability or their might. For you, facing the trial that you're facing and persevering through the discouragement that you're passing through in a way that's honoring to your Father is not something you do in your strength, the Lord is saying. He's saying, I'm with you. I will accomplish it. I will do it. Because I'm present with you. In the book of Zechariah, which is just one book over, you can turn there if you want to Zechariah chapter 4. This is a very similar context where Zechariah is prophesying, and we read in chapter 4, verse 6 
the Lord's message to Zerubbabel. He says in chapter 4, verse 6, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What cannot be accomplished by Israel's power? As they look at this project and realize, we don't have the resources, we don't have the strength, we don't have the craftsmanship, we don't have the ability to make this thing happen, God is saying, that's, what, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's what you're supposed to realize as you set off to pursue a life of obedience to me. You can't. It's not your strength, it's not your might, but it is my spirit. It's my presence with you that will enable you to do the very thing that I'm calling you to do. And so the Israelites were to take courage and to work, even though they felt discouraged at the time, to take courage, to work, because the presence of the Lord assures them their work, their labor is not in vain. It's not worthless. It's not meaningless. But secondly, God encourages not not only through the assurance of his presence, he also encourages them through his promise for the future. He assures them that he's present with them, but he also makes a promise to them about the future. We we read that beginning in verse 6. He first, he he says, I will shake creation. The first aspect of his promise is he's going to shake creation. Look at verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. For God to shake all creation is is another way of saying he is going to display his power, his sovereign authority in such a way that there is not a part of creation, there is not a part of the cosmos that will not be radically affected by it. He's going to shake everything. He's going to demonstrate his power in such a way that the entire order of creation is going to be altered. And what will that look like? What will be the results of him shaking the heavens and the earth? We read in verse 7 and verse 8, I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. When God talks about shaking the nations in the scriptures, and other places in the scriptures, when he talks about shaking the nations, it has to do with 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 him displaying his power, particularly with regard to the rulers and the authorities of this world. He shakes the nations when he rips down rulers and authorities. Or it has to do with him accomplishing some great victory in battle. God shakes the nations when he triumphs over his enemies. That's the way shaking of nations is used in the scriptures. And so what he's saying here is that he is going to display his power in such a way that all the nations of the earth are going to be shaken. And when they are shaken, they will come to this temple. And they'll come with all of their wealth. In other words, God's going to shake the nations, and they're going to come to the temple not to destroy it like Babylon did. God's going to shake the nations in such a way that they come to worship in the temple. They're going to bring their wealth to this place. And they're going to fill the house of God with glory, with their riches. That's the first thing he promises. He says, I'm going to shake the nations. Then secondly, he says, the latter glory is going to be greater than the former. Look at verse 9. The the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And here, the glory doesn't just have to do with the riches of the nations. 
Solomon's temple was a glorious place before it was destroyed. It was glorious because of all of the gold and all of the fancy accessories that were in it. It was glorious for those reasons, but it was particularly, especially glorious because of the God who lived there. The glory of God filled the temple. We read that both with regard to the tabernacle, the the temporary temple that was built in the wilderness, and we read it with regard to Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 8. In both cases, when the temple was, was dedicated, when it was finished, God filled it with the cloud of his glory. We read this in 1 Kings chapter 8. It happened that when the priests came out from the holy place of the temple, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What made Solomon's temple glorious was the glory of the God who lived there. And and now through Haggai, God is saying, if you think that was glorious, if you think it was glorious when I filled the tabernacle or when I filled Solomon's temple with the glory of my presence, wait till you see what I do in the latter days. I'm going to fill this temple with a glory that's far greater than any glory that's ever been seen before. And then lastly, the third thing he says about this promise is that he's going to make it a temple of peace, a place of peace. Read that in the second half of verse 9. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The temple was a symbol of peace for the nation of Israel and for the nations. It was, it it represented, it was intended to represent the place of peaceful relationship between God and his people. It was a place of peace. Does anyone remember why David was not allowed to build the temple? He wanted to, didn't he? It was his heart's longing to build a temple for the Lord, a house for the Lord, but he couldn't. And why couldn't he? God said, because you're a man of bloodshed. You've shed a lot of blood. You are a man of war. And how is a man of bloodshed going to build a house of peace? And so it was David's son whose name was Solomon. Does anyone know what the name Solomon means? Shalom is Hebrew for peace. Shalomon, peace. Solomon's name is peace. And now the son of David whose name was peace, he's the one who's going to build the temple because the temple is a place of peace. All of that is intended to say, when God meets with his people in the temple, it is on peaceful terms. The temple is a place of peace. And so both in the assurance of his presence for the future, uh, sorry, in both the assurance of his presence in the moment and his promise for the temple in the future, with both of those things, God encourages the Israelites and he charges them, take courage and get to work. Do what you're supposed to do. I'm with you, and I will make this thing glorious. Just keep working. They should not, and we should not, allow the disappointment of what they see in the moment. They shouldn't allow present circumstances. They shouldn't allow those things to keep them from seeing God's presence and his promises. They shouldn't allow their discouragement to prevent them from faithfulness to what God had charged them to do. So that's what's happening in Haggai's day. That was a lot of years ago when God made that promise to Israel through Haggai, 520 B.C. We're a long way removed from that here in 2023. And so 
what does God's promise to Haggai, or through Haggai, to the Israelites, what does that have to do with us today? We've seen some applications of it. Certainly there are parallels between God's words and encouragements to the Israelites and to us today. But we also have to see its fulfillment. Because we can't really grasp the fullness of hope that's here in Haggai if we don't see the ways that God fulfills it. And so I want to take a few moments to see the fulfillment of Haggai's prophecy. First of all, how it has been fulfilled. Secondly, how it is being fulfilled. And then finally, how it will be fulfilled. His promise has been fulfilled. And it has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. The temple that Haggai promised is not ultimately a physical temple in Jerusalem. In Mark 13, the disciples are coming out of the temple with Jesus. And they look around at this temple. By this point, Herod had, had invested all kinds of money and resources into the temple in Jerusalem to make it something glorious. He'd made it beautiful, and it really was, by this point, by the time Jesus came to the earth, it really was a glorious temple in a lot of ways because a pagan king had invested a whole lot of money into it. And as the disciples are walking out of the temple with Jesus, they say, this is in Mark 13, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. How does Jesus respond? Is this, is this the temple that Haggai promised? And Jesus says, Do you see this great building? you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. This whole thing is going to be wrecked. And it was in A.D. 70. It was destroyed. The temple, Jerusalem was sacked. It was destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem was a temporary structure. It was always intended to be a shadow, a type of the true temple. Jesus later says, he is the true temple. Perhaps not later, but in a different place. In John chapter 2, he says he is the temple. Jesus, responding to some of the Jewish, Jewish leaders, he says, destroy this temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And, and the Jewish leaders are flabbergasted. And they say, it took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to build it in three days? But then there's a comment afterwards that says Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. He was saying, look, this temple, it's going to be wiped away. But this temple, it's going to be crushed. It's going to be crushed. But it's going to be rebuilt after three days when it's raised up again. He's saying, I'm the true temple. Not only is he the true temple, but he's also the one who shook the earth, isn't he? If you want to know other references to him being the, the true temple, you could look at John 1, verse 14, where it talks about him dwelling among us. Many of you know that word, dwelling, is tabernacled. He pitched his tent. He set up his temple among us. God did when the incarnate word dwelt among us. He's the true temple, and he's also the one who shook the earth. When Jesus breathed his last on the cross, the earth shook. Matthew 27, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. It's the ultimate display of triumph. When Jesus had paid the debt of our sin and we had triumphed over every enemy of God through the cross, the earth shook 
as a demonstration of God's powerful victory. He's the true temple. He's the one who shakes the earth. And not only did he shake the earth, but just as God had promised in Haggai, when he shook the earth, the nations came flocking to him. He was raised from the dead, and it just takes a few chapters, several chapters into Acts before we start to see the wealth of the nations is coming to this temple. Jesus is ransoming and redeeming sinners from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And he's bringing them to himself. They're coming to the temple. The wealth of the nations come. And this temple is a place of peace. Jesus is the place of peace. Haggai promised, I will make this place a place of peace. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. In Ephesians 2, we read, And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. In Colossians 1, we read, Through him God reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his Son. He's the true temple, the true place of peace. He has quenched the wrath. He has removed the enmity that existed between sinful men, and a holy God. And he has established eternal peace between us and our Heavenly Father through his death, through his sacrifice. He's the true temple, the place of true peace. So God has fulfilled his promise through Jesus, the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. He's the true temple. But he's also fulfilling his promise today. He continues to fulfill his promise, and he does so through the church, the church of Christ, The church consisting of believers everywhere and throughout all time who have faith in Christ, the church is the temple of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we read that all who come to Christ are like living stones who are being built up into a house for God. In Ephesians 2, we read the same thing. We find that believers are being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Over and over again, we find that the church is the temple that God is building, the place where he dwells, and he has filled it with his glory. He has filled the church with his glory. The tabernacle was filled with the cloud of glory of God's presence. The temple was filled with the cloud of glory of God's presence. The church was filled with the glorious display of God's presence. It took place in Acts chapter 2 when he poured out his Holy Spirit on the church and it descended like tongues of fire upon the disciples. God was saying, this is now my temple. This is now where I dwell. This is the place where I display my glory. It's in the church. I dwell with my people, those who have been redeemed by my son. And he is filling this temple with the wealth of the nations. He is building it with living stones, not just from one ethnic people, but he has opened the way for every people of every nation to come through the same Savior and be built into a single temple for the dwelling place of the Most High, the Lord of hosts. And so he is filling his temple with the wealth of nations. He is fulfilling his promise through Haggai. But he will also fulfill his promise yet. He will fulfill his promise, and he'll do so when the whole earth becomes his temple. He will one day fulfill his promise when he shakes the earth again. We read that in the book of Hebrews, as Sean read it 
just a little bit ago. God said, yet once more, and I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth again. I'm going to display my power again in such a way that there will not be a, a corner of the created realm that will not be radically affected by it. I'm going to shake everything, he says. And when I shake it, those things which can be removed will be destroyed forever. Only those things which are of my kingdom, only those things which will last will remain. And after he shakes the heavens and the earth, after he removes all of those things which can be removed, everything that is not in Christ, everything that is not in the kingdom of Christ, then he says, I will make a new creation. I will establish a new heavens. I will make a new earth. And this new creation is going to be his eternal temple, the temple in which he forever dwells with all of the redeemed from every nation. Describing the new heavens, if you want to turn there, this will be the last place we look this morning, Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to look at a lot of, uh, well, three different passages from here, so if you want to turn there, it may be helpful. Revelation 21, God is describing the new heavens and the new earth, his new creation. And he describes it as his temple. Revelation 21, verses 22 to 23 that's the wrong reference, uh, 22 to 20, that's right. Revelation 21, 22 to 23. I saw no temple in it, speaking of the new creation, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. This entire new creation is the place where God fills it with his glory and with his presence. There's not a corner of all the, the recreated world in which God will not dwell in the fullness of his glory and of his presence. It will be his true temple, his eternal temple, a place where he forever lives and dwells with his redeemed. It will also be the place where the wealth of the nations is brought. Revelation 21, verses 24 to 26 the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Christ has redeemed a people for himself from every tribe, and every tongue, and every people, and every nation. And in the new creation, all of these people are going to come. They're going to come into this glorious place, the dwelling place of God, and they will come with the wealth of their worship, the wealth of their praises, every single one of them, a display of the conquering grace of Jesus Christ. His new heavens, his new earth will be full of the wealth and the glory of the redeemed nations. And not only will it be a place where the wealth of the nations is brought, but it will be the place of ultimate and final perfect peace. In verses 3 to 4 of Revelation chapter 21, we read, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among them, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. It's the temple. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The discouragements of the world have passed away. All that opposes our courage and our strength has passed away. The enmity that existed has passed away. The sin that remains 
has passed away. This is the place, the new heavens, the new earth, where God's redeemed people dwell in the eternal temple of God. This is the place of perfect peace, the place our souls long for. And because of where we live in redemptive history, we're able to look back at Haggai's promise, and we are able to wholeheartedly agree the latter glory is far greater than the former. What God has done in Christ, what God is doing in his church, and what God will one day in the new, do in the new creation is far greater than any glory of Solomon's temple thousands of years ago. So that's what God has spoken. That's how he has fulfilled it. What does that mean for you and me? What's the takeaway from a passage like this? A promise made a couple thousand years ago, fulfillment that is coming Christ, is coming in the church, will come in the new creation. What does that do for you? What does that do for me? Well, I think it should give us the same encouragement that Haggai gives to the Israelites. Take courage and work. Don't be paralyzed by the reality of your present situation. Don't be, don't be overwhelmed by the disappointments of life. Don't be numbed, immobilized by the hardships, the things that oppose your service to the Lord. But take courage and work because we see something much greater that God is doing. Even when we can't see it in our immediate experience, we see it in his word. And so we can take courage and we can work because we know God fulfills everything that he has said he would. And he will fully do it. And we can rest and we can work because of it. To borrow and twist an illustration from Pastor David Murray, consider what it would be like to be in hand-to-hand combat in a war, in an ancient war. Thousands of soldiers on the field going at each other with swords and shields, hand-to-hand combat in a great battle. When you're in the middle of that battle, all you can see is the soldier in front of you, the soldiers around you. All you know is what's happening immediately in your specific context at that point in the battle. You don't know whether your side is winning or losing, really. You only know what you're experiencing right then and right there. The sword's coming at you, the weakness that you're feeling, the tiredness. And and when that weakness and when that tiredness sets in, because that's all you see, it'd be easy to lose heart and get discouraged. If things are going well, if you're like, yes, I'm, I'm fighting well against the soldiers right in front of me, then you feel encouraged and strengthened for the battle. When you feel like things are not going well, and you feel like immediately in front of you, the enemy is pressing in and they're overcoming, you lose heart, you grow discouraged. But imagine that up on a mountain over to the side, there's the general of the army, and he's looking over the battlefield, and he sees what you can't see. He sees the whole thing. He sees everything that is taking place. He knows that his army is advancing. And he knows that the enemy is falling and fleeing. And he knows that victory is certainly his. He can see it all happening, even when the soldiers on the battlefield can't. Well, God is the general over the battle. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And as he looks out on his created world, and as he looks out on his people, he sees what is happening. And he sees the bigger picture. He knows that his soldiers in the fight are often discouraged and 
are prone to lose heart. He knows that we're tempted to feel like the fight is not worth it. But he also sees what we can't see right now with our own eyes and our own experience. He knows where the battle is going. He knows what the outcome is. He knows that the victory is his. He knows what he has done through his son, whom he sent into the world to gain the ultimate victory. He knows what he is doing through his church as he builds up his church day after day into the glorious temple that he's redeemed it to be. And he knows what he's ultimately going to do when he shakes the earth one final time and inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth. He knows what he's doing, and he wants us to see things from the perspective of the general, to see things from the perspective of the God who sees all, the Lord of hosts who's up on the mountain overlooking and controlling everything that takes place in your life, and he is bringing it perfectly to the very place it ought to be. He will accomplish everything, all of his good and perfect purposes through you. Not because you are mighty, not because you're able to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and press on, not because you're a good DIY builder, but because he's the Lord of hosts and he is with you right now in your trial and in your affliction and in your discouragement. The Lord is just as present with you as he was on the day of Pentecost when he poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. He dwells with you. He walks with you. The Lord of hosts, God Almighty, is with you. Take courage. Get to work. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll finish with these words from the Apostle Paul. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Get to work, trusting in the Lord. Your work is not in vain when it's done in the Lord and for the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the firm foundation that your word is for us when we feel like the world around us is shaking, like mountains are slipping into the hearts of the sea. God, we thank you that when we are perplexed, confused, and overwhelmed by present circumstances and by sadness and by sorrow, we thank you that we can come to your word and that it is for us the solid place to set our feet that we so desperately need. So we pray that you would help us, just as you've commanded us to do through Haggai. Would you help us to take courage, to find strength in your truth? Help us to believe what you have done through Christ, what you are doing right now in your church, and what you will one day do at the return of Christ. Help us to take courage, believe you, rest in you, rejoice in you, and work for you because you have graciously redeemed us and given us hope. We pray that that hope would overwhelm our souls today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.